Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Equitable's third quarter analyst call and webcast on Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. It is now my pleasure to turn the call over to Richard Gill, Senior Director, Corporate Development and Investor Relations at Equitable. Please go ahead, sir. Thanks, Pam. Your hosts today are Andrew Moore, President and Chief Executive Officer, Chadwick Westlake, Chief Financial Officer, and Ron Tratch, Chief Risk Officer. For those on the phone lines only, we encourage you to log on to our webcast as well, as it includes our quarterly slide deck, including slide two, containing Equitable's caution regarding forward-looking statements. It's now my pleasure to turn the call over to Andrew. Thank you, Richard, and good morning, everyone. I'm really pleased with the bank's progress this year. Equitable is now larger, more diversified, and more capable than ever. In every area across our single-family alternative, wealth decumulation, commercial loan and leasing businesses, and EQ Bank, our teams are challenging the status quo, working really hard to fulfill our purpose every day, and generating great success. Today, with three quarters complete towards our high-growth ambition for 2021, I will offer more context on what our record conventional loan growth and outstanding performance at EQ Bank mean for the fourth quarter, and offer an early look at 2022, guidance we normally reserve for February. Chadwick will then provide more details, and Ron is here to address questions on our credit outlook, which has continued to improve. To start, I remind you that we raised our 2021 growth targets in May based on our read of demand signals and clear signs that Canadians in increasing numbers are ready to embrace fintech-driven challenger bank services. This was the right call. Today, we are within striking distance of achieving our 2021 growth objectives. We have conviction that at the end of Q4, we'll meet or exceed all of our stated targets on a full-year basis. Pursuing these objectives, we've gained the trust of a significant number of new customers. And through engagement metrics, we know Canadians are relying on us more than ever to give them the enriching experience that we promised. Looking at the trend beyond Q4, we foresee another great year ahead for Canada's Challenger Bank, reflecting the expected impact of continued strong growth in higher margin conventional loans, plus an additional cost of funds tailwind with the benefit of our new covered bond program. Following our Q4 results next February, we will provide more detailed guidance. What we want to notably offer today includes perspectives on ROE, our North Star, capital and key balance sheet categories that drive earnings. One of the most important categories are alternative single-family loan portfolio, which we expect to grow 12 to 15% next year. This guidance partly rests on the assumption that housing activity will return to a more normal cadence post-pandemic. We like the prospect of greater stability as it allows us to focus on the fundamentals of service excellence rather than making disruptive adjustments to our risk appetite. A return to the office for many workers and Canada's plan to welcome up to 420,000 permanent residents next year will help big city real estate where the bank has a very strong franchise and a constructive view of risk. Once again, we forecast a significant expansion of wealth decumulation business. In 2022, we are targeting reverse mortgage asset growth of more than 150% and CFV asset growth of more than 100% on market share gains and mutual success with our business partners. Our ambitions are also high for all commercial bank lines, and we've published 2022 targets for each of our conventional commercial loan categories. For EQ Bank, we will seek 20 to 30% deposit growth, a target that does not take into account the expected uplift from planned innovations and payments to arrive in 2022. To achieve our goal, we intend to give customers more products to use and more reasons to use them, which is good for them and good for the bank, as it means keeping customer lifetime value well ahead of acquisition costs. Of note, as interest rates rise, we expect EQB or EQ to be an even more competitive source of funds for the bank. As you know from past calls, 
Uh, EQ Bank is a huge part of our plan, but it is only one element of growing and diversifying our deposit book. Directionally, our 2022 outlook supports ROE of 15% or greater, consistent with our historical best-in-class returns. Now the third quarter results, and further context on our milestone achievements. Assets under management surpassed $40 billion at September 30th, 13%, or $4.7 billion higher than a year last year. As managers, we do think long-term, and it pleases me to note that the bank's AUM is more than twice as large as it was at the end of 2015. As you saw in that earlier slide, our full year 2021 target for total loan growth is 8 to 12%. After nine months, we're, we're now at 14% with good contributions from both sides of the bank. What's important is that year-over-year loan growth of 17% of the commercial bank and 13% of the personal bank very much favored wider spread conventional loans. Conventional loans are the earnings engines of this bank, so it's good to know that Q3 was our most productive quarter ever for conventional loan accumulation. For an institution that is incredibly disciplined in risk management, you can draw an important conclusion. We believe it is now entirely prudent to put more risk-weighted capital to work than a year ago because of the economic recovery, including a recovery of all the jobs lost during the pandemic. I'm particularly pleased with the performance of our single-family alternative business, our largest generator of conventional loans. We achieved record originations of $2 billion in Q3, more than three times higher than last year when we constrained asset growth to control risk exposure, and 251 million higher than the previous quarterly records set in Q2 2021. Retention rates also improved towards pre-pandemic levels. By working hard to reinforce our standing with mortgage broker partners and support their businesses, these results prove that we've regained momentum as the market leader, all while maintaining our traditional underwriting disciplines. For our personal bank, the other big news was a sharp increase in our wealth decumulation book, where assets shot past the $200 million mark, led by a 229% year of a growth in reverse mortgage balances. The reverse mortgage market is a sleeping giant. Before entering it in 2018, we spent considerable time studying the high growth equity release markets in the UK and Australasia, and reasoned that, uh, that Equitable had the opportunity to build a position a business position for growth, but propelled by underlying demographic forces of an aging population. We also believed and continue to believe that innovation can benefit this market. Competitively, the presence of just one monoline lender in the entire Canadian market was also appealing. That lender was recently acquired by the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, for what we understand was an attractive price to book value multiple for the sellers. Meanwhile, CSV registered 127% growth year over year. With the third quarter edition of Forrester's Financial, we now have arrangements with eight leading partners to bring cash surrender value lines of credit to their policyholders. We're working to expand the breadth and depth of our relationships. On the commercial side, loan assets increased 17% to a record $10.1 billion, with record quarterly commercial loan originations of $1.3 billion, 14% ahead of last year. The strongest contributor was conventional commercial, where production was up 53% year-over-year to $786 million. In comparison to 2021 targets, each commercial line was on or ahead of plan. In the interest of time, I will single out two. After experiencing elevated scheduled maturities in Q2, our commercial finance group came back strong in Q3, with year-over-year -year loan growth at 21%, right in line with our annual objective. Within equipment leasing, portfolio growth of 25% year-over-year was well ahead of our target range for the year. The drivers of the transportation logistics sector of the economy. The credit metrics in this business are performing very well, and I'm delighted with the performance of this business since we bought it just over two and a half years ago. We also set out to build stronger channels to market for both our multi-unit and prime single-family insured mortgage businesses as a means of improving franchise value, and we're doing that too. Our growth ambitions and our broader purpose of enriching people's lives are very much supported by the fantastic success of our digital platform and fintech-related operations. This year, we've added real substance to our claim of making EQ Bank the hub that Canadians can rely on 
for their most important financial transactions, and we're seeing the benefits. EQ Bank deposits grew 60% over 2020 to a record $6.9 billion at September 30th, against our full year 30 to 50% target. Growth continued through October as EQ deposits uh, surpassed $7 billion and the number of customers increased to 240,000. I'm proud of the fact that we reward all customers with good everyday rates and an even better experience. While this means that we don't chase hot money, it does say something really positive about our customer philosophy and the confidence we now have in the services we offer. In Q3, those services were well used. Digital transactions increased 99% on a year of to date basis. Engagement like this means that EQ Bank is becoming more important in the lives of our customer. One of those new services is the EQ Bank US dollar account. Launched in June to address the needs of financially savvy customers who want real-time exchange rates with full fee transparency and easier, cheaper, and faster money transfers in US dollars worldwide. It reached our annual deposit growth goal in the first quarter. With ongoing account growth, it now has nearly $150 million of deposits and has formed a source of growing non-interest FX revenue for the bank. I know I'm repeating myself by saying how proud I am of the US dollar capability we've built, but I do urge you to use this solution to really experience what a state-of-the-art digital bank is capable of delivering. Our journey to enrich people's lives continues. In late September, we launched a new e-transfer service. Our original capability was built using our minimum viable product philosophy. We replaced this basic service with an innovative capability using the insights we gained by talking to customers. There has never been a better time to have a modern, flexible, cloud-based infrastructure I say so not only because it enables us to serve Canadians the way they wish to be served, but because the future will see the modernization of Canada's payments infrastructure and the advent of open banking. The real-time rail, a major part of that modernization effort, will arrive in the next couple of years in the form of a national payment system that will enable fast, data-rich payments, giving Canadians the ability to move meaningful sums of money instantly and with certainty. We are readying ourselves for this advancement in several ways. In the second half of 2022, we will introduce an EQ Bank payment card. True to our brand philosophy, it will allow customers to use their funds to make e-commerce and in-store purchases, along with cash withdrawals, all with no fees, attractive rewards, and a seamless all-digital experience. The EQ card will add an important new level of convenience for customers and cement our status as a fully capable hub bank. The card will also add an interchange-based revenue stream to the bank. We recently entered a six-year strategic arrangement with MasterCard as a formative step in our payments plan. That plan also envisions, envisions offering credit card services to fintechs and others by positioning equitable for what's known in the industry as a BIN sponsorship. Thinking more broadly, as part of our payment strategy, we are committed to connecting directly to the real-time rail. This will allow us to enable real-time payments and become a service provider for fintechs to connect into the RTR. Another important milestone achieved in Q3 is that the bank became carbon neutral in our scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions, with details contained in a press release issued last night. Our emissions per dollar of revenue are far lower than branch-based banks. We'll share more details of our ESG strategy and a new report next year and plan to set meaningful reduction targets that align with the bank's purpose. We think publicly expressing targets, whether for GHG or asset and deposit growth, gives all stakeholders the means to assess progress and hold us to account. Stepping back, it's been just over a year since Chadwick joined as part of a broad organizational redesign and the realignment into personal and commercial banking divisions led by Mahima Padar and Darren Lorimer, respectively. We made those changes to ensure that our structure and leadership are suitable for an institution that is far bigger and more capable than the equitable of old. We also added more strength and depth in our management team with key hires and promotions in many areas of the bank. I'm glad we have the executive talent around decision-making and strategy development that is increasingly aligned, well aligned with our long-term ambitions. We absolutely have the proven management talent to take Canada's challenger bank to the next level 
and detailed plans in place behind all of our 2022 targets. Most important, our team, numbering over 1,000 challengers, is aligned and ready to take on new possibilities with the creativity and discipline that has been so critical to record-breaking performance this year. My thanks to all team members. Chadwick, over to you. Thanks, Andrew, and good morning, everyone. As a footnote to Andrew's comments about leadership, we will also be sending out Save the Dates in coming weeks for an investor day that will land at the end of February or early March 2022, at which time you will see our broader team in action and in person. Results for the third quarter in the first nine months are right on point as we close in on meeting our high growth targets for 2021. As expected, we made significant investments in order to create future shareholder value while delivering the ROE, set one, book value, and EPS growth that rewards our owners today. I'm pleased to say that among Canadian banks, Equitable's 2021 performance to date continues to stand out. Through Q3, risk-managed deployment of capital resulted in growth of 13% year-over-year and 6% quarter-over-quarter in AUM. This reflected $3.8 billion of originations, up $1.5 billion from suppressed levels in Q3 last year. As Andrew said, we purposely skew growth in favor of water margin conventional loans, all while remaining within our prudent risk appetite framework. Growth in those assets, combined with wider spreads arising from lower funding costs, provided NAI and NIM expansion in Q3, and a favorable tailwind for earnings in the coming quarters. The work we've done to broaden and improve funding sources is paying off. Total deposits of $19.8 billion were up 21% year-over-year including digital bank deposit growth of 60%. Quarterly revenue increased to an all-time high of $162.1 million, plus 9% year-over-year and plus 2% sequentially. The outcome was our best quarterly earnings performance of 2021 so far, with Q3 diluted EPS of $4.14 a share. Just as a reminder, the numbers we present today are on a pre-split basis, as the two-for-one common share split occurred into Q4, as of trading on October 26th. Reporting on our new share count basis will be as of Q4 results. Compared to last year, Q3 EPS was lower by 16 cents, half due to an increase in diluted shares outstanding, a third resulting from planned investments into new capacity, digitization, and process improvements, and the remainder the result of temporarily elevated gains in securitization last year, due to COVID-related funding market disruptions. EPS through the first nine months of 2021 was the best ever and up 38% from 2020. On ROE, our bank delivered again at 16% Q3 and 16.6% year-to-date, compared to our target of 15 to 17%. We chose to deploy more of our excess capital in Q3 to generate higher future earnings. Notwithstanding, Set one remained well in our target range of 13 to 14%. If set one was at our target floor of 13%, ROE would have actually been about 17.2% in Q3. We think expressing excess capital versus the target floor rather than the mid-range of set one as we've done in the past provides a more meaningful reflection of our excess capital. As in Q2, we did have a PCL reversal in Q3, reflecting improving economic variables. Aside from the impact of PCLs, pre-provision, pre-tax income was higher than in Q2 and in Q1, and book value per share shot ahead to $105.80 a share after breaking the $100 barrier for the first time last quarter. Moving to funding, our markets continue to provide everything we need to grow. With our recent success in adding more digital deposits, expanding our institutional deposit note program, and with the highly successful first issuance of our European Cover Bond Program, we've improved our cost of funds sequentially. We issued 350 million euro of cover bonds in September, or more than half a billion dollars Canadian. This was at a spread of just 15 basis points over euro mid-swaps, which translates to this becoming the lowest cost of wholesale funding in our stack, more than 55 basis points cheaper than GIC. We were very pleased to earn participation by more than 40 net new international institutional investors across 15 countries, resulting in a three times oversubscribed first issuance. These bonds have been trading well since issuance and are now marked at a spread of 11 basis points over Euro mid swaps, 
or but four basis points tighter than issue, making it a successful transaction from both the issuer and investor perspective. We have CMHC's approval to make this a $2 billion program, and you can rest assured we will take full advantage. We expect to be back in the market later in Q2 or into Q3 next year. I've mentioned this in past calls, but I will reiterate that at program maturity with this early success, we could expect to see annual costs of fund savings of more than $11 million, higher than previous guidance. We are well positioned with liquidity of $3.2 billion at the end of Q3 and a liquidity ratio of 9.3% versus 9.1% a year ago. The combination of higher asset growth and lower cost of funds translated into Q3 NII growth of 18% year-over-year to $150.9 million and NIM of 1.83%. NIM expanded both sequentially and year-over-year. In both cases, this is the result of the shift to conventional loans, particularly alternative single-family. Compared to 2020, NIM growth in Q3 was also due to higher levels of prepayment income within the personal bank loan portfolio. Sequentially, this was a headwind. The highest yielding business line contributes, continues to be leasing at 9.8% Q3, which is a little lower than a year ago, reflecting Bennington's success in growing its prime business, which has increased approximately 73% year-over-year. NIM for the remainder of 2021 is expected to be relatively consistent with Q3, as we continue to shift our mix of business to uninsured assets, while prepayment income declines from the seasonally high summer months. Prepayment income is variable, as are other factors such as seasonal variations in our liquidity holdings that may shift NIM in a given quarter. Currently, the bank's non-interest income growth is heavily influenced by derecognition volumes and gains on sale, both of which were abnormally high last year due to funding market disruption caused by the pandemic and lower in Q3 this year as markets stabilized. This revenue from gains on sale is returned to normalized pre-COVID levels. In Q3, fees and other income grew 12% year-over-year. This is an early reflection of our plan to increase the flow of non-interest income from new products like the EQ Bank U.S. dollar account. It will take time to make this flow more meaningful, but we are challenging ourselves to work towards double-digit growth in non-interest income annually, outside of gains on sale, which are driven by other market factors. This will include flow from some of the payment innovations that Andrew mentioned, our new aggregator business, FX, continued gains from strategic investments in fintechs, wealth solutions, and much more to come. On our last call, I said to expect expense growth to return to low single-digit quarter-over-quarter levels in both Q3 and Q4 after a big uptick in the first half of 2021. And that's exactly what transpired. Total non-interest expenses were up 3.8% sequentially. This means we continue to operate within our 2021 full-year efficiency target of 39 to 41%. After three quarters, we're at 40.3%. We expect to end 2021 within our target range. We've been making incrementally smart, more smart investments for the future while generating our North Star ROE and keeping a lens to our best-in-class efficiency. We look at costs in three buckets of people, process, and platform. For people, we increased compensation costs 19% year-to-date and 3% quarter-over-quarter. The sequential increase reflected growth in FTE. The year-to-date increase reflected talent additions, but also more competitive compensation. We have world-class talent and need to compensate accordingly. For processes, including corporate and marketing categories, expenses were down slightly quarter-over-quarter, even as we launched a campaign in June to support our reverse mortgage business which contributed to sizable market share gain. Growth and process improvements over the first nine months reflected marketing support for reverse mortgages and EQ Bank with good results. In platform, Q3 product costs were up 4% quarter over quarter and 27% year over year. These are good costs. We refer to them as investments as they will pay off next year and beyond. I think it's worth noting that amortization and increasing technological programs can have an impact in this category. Five percentage points of the 20% increase in non-interest expenses over the first nine months was due to overall higher depreciation and amortization. Within our 2021 guidance, we said to expect a continued positive trend in credit metrics and the reopening of the economy. In Q3, we had a $3.5 million reversal, 
of stage one and stage two, as previously expected, credit losses did not materialize. And I'm pleased to say macroeconomic forecast improved across two key variables since Q2, unemployment and HPI. These positive macro variable changes resulted in a decline in expected loss rates on both stage one and stage two loans. While reversals occurred across all portfolios, our single family and leasing portfolios benefited, benefited to a greater extent from this positive trending than our commercial real estate book. Of note, we did not make any changes to our five scenario weights, and if our base case translates, we would be in a position to release potentially $4.2 million. Our overall ACL now sits at 52.1 million, 8% lower compared to Q2 and 25% lower year over year, but still up from what we would view as a potentially normalized level of approximately $40 million. To put this into context, we currently hold 17 basis points in ACL, appropriately elevated from 14 basis points prior to the emergence of COVID, but gradually reducing to near normal levels as the economy continues to improve. As a forward-looking comment, we expect credit loss provisions on our loan book to remain low or reverse further next quarter and into 2022, assuming the path to Canada's economic recovery reflects our base case and losses remain low. Arrears in our personal bank and commercial bank are also expected to remain low with midterm annualized loss rates of one to two basis points for our mortgage portfolio and 150 to 200 basis points for equipment lease. Gross impaired loans were down 40% sequentially and down 21% year over year. The improvement since Q2 was due to the resolution of two commercial loans amounting to 40.1 million plus a 9.4 million net reduction in single family mortgages and equipment leases. While we have a great track record of managing risk, we also know how to resolve problem loans when they occur. Moving to capital, the story of the quarter is about increased deployment to build an even stronger earnings platform for 2022. RWA increased 8% sequentially to 12.4 billion in Q3. As a result, the set one ratio of 13.7% was down seven basis points from Q2. But as I mentioned earlier, this remains within our range of 13 to 14%. Compared to our 13% target floor, we now have excess capital of about 88 million or $5.17 a share. From our perspective, this is the best way we can deploy excess capital toward organic growth that will provide consistent and predictable NII growth in coming quarters. We were also pleased to gain strong shareholder support for our first ever stock split on a two-for-one basis with 82% of eligible votes cast and 99.9% support. As I noted, shares began trading on a split basis on October 26th. This is part of our broader program towards closing what we firmly believe remains a material discount in our share price to fair valuation. In closing, we're moving from strength to strength. Q3 has set us up perfectly to deliver on our annual growth targets, and we expect to start 2022 in great shape, ready to take on the challenge associated with our new next-level ambitions, as Andrew outlined this morning. With that, I'll ask the operator to open the line up to your questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request and your questions will be polled in the order they are received. Should you wish to decline from the polling process, please press star followed by two. And if you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before pressing any keys. One moment for your first question. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Your first question comes from Manny Grauman with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, Chadwick, you highlighted uh, risk-weighted uh, asset growth, uh, 8% sequentially, 
clearly strong loan growth is, is a big part of that story, but it doesn't seem to be explaining everything. So I'm just wondering if there's anything else uh, driving that. I don't know if it's simply as business mix, uh, anything you can add to kind of highlighting what's driving that uh, RWA growth that's so strong uh, on a sequential basis. Do you want to go first, Andrew? No, no, I think Travis. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, well, it, it is, it is the, the conventional loan portfolio, though, many. So uh, as, as you've seen, a lot of our growth, the, the focus of our growth has been the alternative portfolio uh, in key commercial categories, including the great growth, uh, say, for example, in, in specialized leasing, uh, and right across the commercial book. So those have higher risk weights, of course, which are driving up the RWA at a faster pace, but they're going to translate with, uh, with better margins. And that's part of why we had the conviction in improving NII growth from here. That's really the, the, the art of it. Because, of course, again, when you look at the pipeline or when the loans were booked, it was a, sometimes that can land a little bit later in the quarter, right? So you see the RWA go up, but the earnings are not yet reflected. It has to set one drop a little bit. Yeah, that's certainly, certainly many of them. To, just to reiterate what Chadwick said, to finish that, I think it's important to reinforce that you're not really seeing the earnings growth from that risk-weighted asset growth flow through into, in its entirety this quarter. But, but obviously, we start uh, the beginning of uh, October in, in great shape because we've got those, those assets on our books. But I would say that um, September was where we started to see a lot of the asset growth. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, just uh, similarly on the, on the covered bond side, the covered bond was issued you know, quite a bit towards the end of the quarter, so we didn't really see much benefit from that in the current quarter. But it, in the quarter, we're just reporting, but in this current quarter, we should start to see that flow through. And uh, then just in terms of the outlook for RWA growth, uh, you know, based on your guidance uh, for 2022, it seemed like you're expecting RWA growth to, to moderate uh, in 2022. Just wanted to check uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, clearly we've seen some dramatic growth in the alternative single-family business. Um, we continue to believe that the, you know, the market's in great shape and we're really well positioned to continue to, to gain market share within it. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, I think our guidance, is, is, as we've commented in the script, is based on a, on a slightly more normal cadence for, for sales in the, in the uh, housing market. And then in, in terms of the outlook for 2022, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but what's baked in in terms of your uh, rate uh, expectations uh, for, for 2022, underpinning sort of the, the, the guidance that you provided us? Yeah, we, we don't really build in any rate expectations, so we don't see that as um, we haven't certainly built in any kind of increase in NIM based on on rates going up. I did kind of allude that to that in my comments around uh, a belief that uh, as prime rates increase, for example, that we wouldn't follow lockstep in the EQ Bank side of things. So there may be some reasonable NIM to be captured if, if you do see prime go up, but that hasn't been factored into any of our um, projections at this point. And, and then just one more for me on, on that front. Uh, you uh, highlight portfolio, portfolio growth expectations for 2022 over a number of categories, but I'm wondering if you kind of sum it all up, how does uh, loan growth Look, uh, you know, relative to the eight, eight to twelve percent uh, range that you gave for 2021, what would you expect for 2022? Yeah, it'd be more. So the the average for this year was more in the that eight to twelve percent range. So next year would look more in the twelve to fifteen percent range. That's it for me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Benny. Your next question comes from James Gloin with National Bank. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, morning, Jim. First, first question is uh, is is on the uh, the payments card uh, launch. If you could uh, uh, maybe just give us a little bit more color as to what you're expecting from uh, from customer acquisition, client retention, and uh, and potential revenue uh, coming off of that interchange fees, or is there anything else that we should be thinking about on the on the payments card launch? Yeah. So, this, so thanks for that question. So the the um, we know from our customer research, we, we do have some really interesting conversations with our customers, um, and that really drives our thinking about where to go next with, with product, that, that there are a significant number of our current customers, and particularly some customers that choose not to sign up with us because they believe they can't make payments or draw out cash. So the principal part of the play, at least for this at this point, for us is to uh, eliminate that objection. and. Uh, 
and allow them allow people to use the the EQBank product as a much more fundamental source of you know much much fundamental more fundamental relationship. It'll be you know, we almost have to get there and deliver the card to to see how that will play out. Now, in order to there is obviously a cost around building a a card solution, and so in order to um, you know, both defray our costs because we can spread them across a broader range of services, but also provide useful services to our uh, many of our partners already in the fintech community. We'll be we'll be launching that bin sponsorship approach so that um, for non-regulated FIs that want you know fintechs that want to offer a prepaid card solution, we would be the card underlying we would be the bank underlying that those solutions. Um, so that, you know, there's two elements, two sides to the story. Um, the interchange revenue, I think, will give you sort of better guidance when we get to, say, say the, um, the investor day in the early part of next year. Uh, we're, we're not building a lot of interchange revenue associated with this from our um, own operations, but we do already see significant um, revenues coming from third-party services. We, we currently have one third-party um, fintech under contract with us to deliver the service. We've got three in active state negotiations, so we're seeing some pretty good interest in the solution. Okay, so both interchange and third-party uh, fee is going to be the revenue component from uh, from a payment card. Um, is this is uh, I, I would assume this is like step one. Do you have also um, you know step two, three, four to add other um, you know payment options like credit? Uh, or uh, you know, with the with the e-commerce platform, uh, anything with respect to the buy now, pay later, where you've made some investments in the past. I mean, certainly, you know, we we have been looking, you know, poking around buy now, pay later. Don't don't haven't really pushed hard there. Clearly, as we start to get into payment cards, there may be a need for you know, some of our customers may may see some benefit in providing lines of credit that that support you know temporary. Um, Temporary cash demands. Uh, so, you know, certainly that's that's where it leads you next. Uh, you know, to date we see that payment card as uh, as functioning more like a debit card, a way to to make a payment from money that's already in the account. Okay. Um, James, as well, of course, with the payment solution. That's it's the, the the direct questions asked, but as you can appreciate, this is part of rounding out the entire digital bank, right? This is one of the top requested solutions by our, our customers today, and we believe this will help further increase cust customer acquisition, improve that ratio of customer lifetime value to, to, to customer cost of customer acquisition, and then further engagement, which we which we publish as well, right? more more products to, to bring them in. So we're looking at the whole economics as it starts to come into play. Uh, I'm really excited about that, that momentum we're going to establish. Excellent. Um, second theme was just on the uh, the all pay single family book. Um, obviously, really really strong growth and originations. I think it was it all pay originations were two billion uh, in the quarter, um, which is obviously a really strong result. Um, can you talk about you know what you're hearing from uh, from the boots on the ground in terms of uh, you know market share, competitive dynamics? How is that uh, market? Uh, how did that market play out in Q3? And then what are some of the adjustments you're looking at today in the all-day space as we're seeing, uh, um, you know, five or like uh, interest rates back up a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, the, the the adjustments you make are effectively as as we as we change pricing, things like GDS, TDS, uh, automatically, you know, people have to have more income, so that that's an automatic kind of credit adjustment, if you like. Um, certainly, we are hearing that our team are doing a great job on customer service. Um, very engaged with the brokers. We've delivered a, some pretty good technological solutions uh, in the first half of the year, or the first three quarters of the year, that are making it us easier to deal with. And we expect to have some more advancements, a pretty significant advancement launched before the end of that end of this year to continue that journey to to really excel on customer service, which has really always been our calling card. So I'm pretty excited about how this business will be positioned coming into next year. And that's in contrast with how we started last year. And as I've mentioned on this call in the past, um, and I, you know, it's on me, but I, I, we were overly cautious last year in, in the middle of the year and did, did cause some fraying of the, of the broker relationships with a, you know, as it, as it turns around in retrospect, uh, overly sensitive view of how the credit might play out in the face of the pandemic. Um, and so it, it's, you know, the team's done a great job, frankly, Rebuilding those relationships and and with it delivering 
kind of digitally enabled in the innovation that I think is going to take us up to the next level here. Okay, and do, do you feel from your conversations that you've grabbed some market share here, or is this uh, more a case of the industry doing really, really well uh, as a whole? We certainly are understanding from kind of boots on the ground, feedback from our, um, feedback from our sales team, um, business development managers, and from the data that we get. You know, we do have some proprietary data around market share. It's not entirely clear, you know, it's not entirely crisp, um, and it is a bit more focused in Ontario rather than it's, it's easy, more easily available in Ontario than other provinces. But certainly our, our understanding will obviously see as the, you know, the other people participating in the space report, uh, but certainly our, our belief is that we've gained share. Great. Thanks very much. Your next question comes from Graham Riding with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Oh, hi. Good morning. Um, just on the the interest rate mortgage rate side, as we started to see interest rates rise here, what are you seeing in terms of mortgage spreads, mortgage spreads both on your Alta and your commercial book? Um, you know, essentially, uh, they those spreads remain the same. As we've mentioned many times, we use our ROE calculator to to to, to calculate the spreads and returns we're driving. Um, you know, when when rates move very fast, things can get a little bit out of whack for a short period of time, but we. We're pretty quick to adjust, uh, so certainly seeing um, you know spreads being well maintained. Uh, you know we're, we're probably in this period of what looks like some pretty significant volatility and upcoming in interest rates. We'll need to be sort of on our toes to keep adjusting rates. But don't forget, we we compete in the alt space. You know with other people that fund through similar mechanics than us. You know use most of the funding coming out of the broker GIC market. You know, we obviously have some really good funding sources and covered bonds now, which are cheaper than GICs um, and you know, our own proprietary channels through EQ Bank, which may, may give us a slight funding advantage vis-a-vis our major competitors. But broadly speaking, we have the same kind of cost structure there. And similarly on commercial. So you know, commercial is much easier because it's priced on a loan-by-loan basis and people understand that we're, how we're thinking about that. We do have to be a bit uh, more rapid to, to change in the single-family business, which is more of a rate card type of business, but those rate cards do change fairly frequently as we see underlying rates change in the market. So I do think compared to many other types of financial services, we have a pretty good position to uh, to you know, push rates push rates through as, as, as our underlying funding costs rise. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, on the funding side, so my math tells me that deposit notes and your covered bonds represent about eight percent of your deposit mix today. Where would you sort of be targeting to see that by the end of twenty two perhaps? Yeah, <clears throat> higher for sure, Graham. So we you, you're right. So the deposit note program where Andrew was mentioning the, our competitive position with funding and the markets were. We're, as our program has matured, in some cases we're seeing spreads even tighter than GICs as well, and in the deposit notes, and then covered bonds we see higher. So to answer your questions, we would see covered bonds being at least double from where it is now. So it kind of, if you call it, call, it, call it 2%, go to 4% kind of thing. And deposit notes, probably, you know, if it's a billion-dollar program in now, you know, you may see that another 50% increase by, by, by next year. So you, know, you, do, you do the math on that and assume this level of growth rates, too, that we've projected for EQ Bank, you can kind of build that funding stack up. Also, when we're saying another 20 to 30% growth in EQ Bank deposits, so you can sort of get that updated perspective. And then, and then broker GICs would, would come down a little bit more in the funding stack, so net net some, some tailwind. Yeah, just to, be, just to follow up on that, the, the one number that's important in terms of dropping in the bottom line is, is how much we do in deposit in uh, covered bonds and when we do those. You know, broadly speaking, the deposit note cost is, is roughly speaking the same cost as uh, depends on any day, any market, you know, the day in the market, but roughly speaking the same prices or same cost to us, net net, or as um, broker deposits. So, uh, in terms of your models, I don't think we're particularly you're particularly sensitive to the, the growth in the deposit note program, although it's great from a safety and diversification of funding basis. But clearly, um, you know, saving that 50 basis points or so on covered bonds becomes really important. Okay, understood. I thought deposit notes were a cheaper funding source as well, but it's just so oh. the covered bonds. That's where you're that's where you're going to get the uh, uh, the funding cost benefit. 
Yeah, I mean, deposit notes, you know, you know, sometimes they could be 10 bits cheaper for that sort of yeah. thing. So it's not, it's not as though they're not, it's not as though it's completely inconsequential. But I think when you're building out an aggregate model of the bank, it's probably not going to be a big driver. But the, 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 deposit, the covered bonds, certainly, just because the delta is that much bigger, it's more sensitivity to the earnings side. Okay. And <clears throat> my last one, if I could, just um, with the rollout of uh, payments in, um, I think you said, uh, second half of 22, any material expense associated with just the infrastructure or the marketing behind that? Or should we expect that to just be embedded within, you know, a reasonable expense growth rate that we're sort of seeing this year? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, as you're building these new programs, generally you're capitalizing a lot of that cost so that that then starts to kick in in the second half next year. But none of that, obviously, when Chavik's projecting our kind of efficiency ratio, the ROEs he's projecting, you know, that is that is how the team is, is doing that build up. So nothing that you should be you know, overly concerned about. Understood. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you. Thanks, Ram. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, if you do have any questions, please press star 1. Your next question comes from Jeffrey Kwan with RBC. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I just had one question. Is As you look to get your transition to AARB um, you know, at the start, of, I think it's 2023, are you able to talk about um, in terms of where you, the, the areas of your, of your loan book that you would get the most um, risk-weighted asset relief. In particular, just curious if that changes your appetite on, on where you want to grow the business versus what you're doing right now. I think Ron, Ron's here and can maybe add some more color to what I'm saying. Certainly, we expect in our current business, we would expect pretty significant capital relief in our single-family mortgage business and in much of our commercial business. It does become a bit more nuanced in our commercial business. Some, some parts of our business where um, the capital reef would be more significant. And I do think it will allow us to compete in better quality commercial assets where the risk weights uh, will reflect the fact that we're lending on lower risk assets. So things like um, cash flow apartment buildings will become an area where we can be more competitive you know, post-ARB than we are today. Um, so it will change the mix of our business and I think generally move it to a less risky asset business. Um, on, you're deep in you're deep in the weeds on AIB. Is that does that kind of align with your thinking? It, it absolutely aligns. Um, Jeffrey, the only comment that I would make in addition to what Andrew has said is recognize that typically when a bank is is is, is blessed with the ARB um, approval from the regulator, the the capital savings are typically staged in over a period of time, could be three, four, five years, and so it gives management. A lot of time. It's not a cliff-like effect where we would immediately change the composition of the book. It would be a very gradual change. Um, your question was directed at specific business lines, but um, we are when you become ARB, you do have to hold a, a certain percentage of capital at the top of the house. So management have, will have some some very interesting decisions to make in terms of how we deploy capital to the various businesses. But if you think of it being staged over time, um, limited at the top of the house. Um, you could, it, I think it helps you to understand it would be a gradual shift into some of these areas that, uh, that uh, Andrew's referenced. And Jeff, just to kind of reinforce, I mean, which is the way we think about this, is there's two things that really excite me about ARB. One is to be able to support our clients over a longer lifespan. So today I find it really frustrating that we help a customer build an apartment building, for example, fill it with tenants, get to a lower risk um, type of asset and then we can't compete with AIB banks because that, that asset is now safer and, and, and therefore they're able to use lower risk weights. So in our new world, we would envisage uh, holding you know, high risk weights on that asset we first put on the books, lower the risk weight as the risk weight drops and, and be able to support a customer over a longer period of time. And it should be relatively cheap for us to service that customer because we'd obviously have the, the history of that, um, of that client relationship. The other thing is that the bank is becoming more sophisticated, and we'll show this to you in spades in, uh, in our uh, um, investor meeting in the spring. But as we become more sophisticated, we need to have better ways to measure credit risk across the various books and be entirely objective about how we're allocating capital. So ARB allows us to do that. You know, we're well aware that under standardized approach, there's some sort of approximations to risk being used, and we, and we, we think, uh, think about that a lot. But ARB allows us to 
to align our, our capital allocation with the true underlying risks. And, and maybe if I could just a quick follow-up on that is, is to your comments around the single-family residential book, um, you know, in your Alte book. Do you foresee that, I mean, does that allow you or, or do you plan to be, um, kind of use that to your advantage in terms of, you know, improving further your competitive position in that, in that space? Well, certainly, I, I think it, believe, it, it opens up that opportunity. Um, and today, you know, as, as you know, we have, you have prime mortgages and you have alt mortgages, and, and we, all of those mortgages are, are risk weighted 35% um, under the standardized approach. You know, the big banks are risk weighting their mortgage books in somewhere in the 10 to 20% range, uh, so much, much lower. Uh, and clearly, um, there are buckets of risk within the that mortgage business that uh, within the within the old and prime mortgage businesses that, that uh, do should quite correctly demand different risk weights, and so we, we will be able to be more finely tuned as a bank in terms of which which parts of the space we choose to compete in, um, you know, based on the pricing that we can demand in the marketplace for that that component and the risk weights that, that should be applied. Okay, thank you. There are no further questions at this time. Please proceed, Mr. Moore. Well, thanks, Pam. Uh, if you would like to engage on any of, our, any of the topics we discussed today, our door is always open. Thank you for time and attention, and uh, have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Have a great day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.